What do you think about God? Who you know God to be, who He is, what He's done, determines who you are. And it determines how you live your life. But a more vital question is, what does God think of you? Most people, I think, are really experts at avoiding this question by just keeping busy. Chasing dreams, pursuing amusement, satisfying desires, and if all else fails, there's always alcohol and drugs to numb the conscience. In his book, Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis reminds us that God's face is the delight or the terror of the universe. He cannot be ignored. He is the delight or the terror of the universe. How do you see Him? How does He see you? One day, each one of us will stand before the splendor of the all-knowing, all-powerful, perfectly holy judge of the universe. How will He see you then? Will it be a moment of delight or will it be terror? There are pastors who spend their lives laboring to help people feel good about themselves. Pastors who spend their lives seeking to entertain people, telling them what they want to hear. One of the compelling and conscious labors of my life is to prepare you to stand before God in eternity. I purposefully, prayerfully devote my life so that I am prepared. And I hope by God's grace that you are prepared for that day. Now, that it, what, how, does that, how do people respond to that? In our world, this task that I have, this task indeed that we have as an assembly of believers to prepare one another to meet God in delight or in terror, how does the world look at that? With a smirk. A dismissive smirk. Rolling of the eyes, or in some cases, even unbridled ridicule that we would even have such a conversation in this enlightened day. To think that there should be terror in people's heart of standing before the God of the universe. How foolish is that, so many would say today. But we come week in and week out to hear the word of the Lord to exhort one another, to edify one another, encouraging one another to continue on persevering in the faith because we believe this to be the case, that every knee will bow before Christ in either delight or terror. And so we come back to this fundamental question again, which we ask over and over in our lives, and I think really on a daily basis should be considering this. How can a sinner stand before a righteous God? How can a sinner stand before a righteous God? It is not enough that your church knows how to answer that question. It's not enough that your pastors know how to answer that question. It's not enough children that your parents know how to answer that question. You, how do you answer? How can a sinner stand before a righteous God? How can we gain entrance into God's eternal presence 
and be assured of His pleasure in our daily lives. There is a connection between this life and the next. But how can we know this? How can we do this? There are, these are matters of life and death significance to us and to the Apostle Paul as he writes with deep concern for the Galatian believers, pouring out his energies in zeal to make sure that they're ready to stand before the living God. We come back to Gen- uh, Genesis. Well, it starts with a G. Uh, Galatians, sorry, Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. We come to this section here today. And I, I won't continue to do this over and over through the series, but I think this might be another place to stop. And just to help us, particularly those who are coming to understand the Bible, do not have a lot of background with the Bible, this I trust will be helpful to you to consider once again. We need to have these ideas in view or Galatians really makes little sense to us and maybe in particular this passage. But we have the call of Abraham. God calls Abram, first his name, out of Mesopotamia to father an offspring that is uniquely chosen by God. This nation Israel In its head, Abraham is called to be distinctively the people of God. And the sign of God's covenant with Abraham and with his offspring is a sign of circumcision. So the men circumcise, indicating that their families, that they are part of the unique and called people of God. Sometime later... The law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and the nation gathered there at the foot of that mountain. God reveals His law to the nation of Israel for her good. She is uniquely chosen among all the nations of the earth to receive this law from God. We could look at parts of it and say, well, it was very, it messed with your life. I mean, it was difficult to follow. But Israel always saw this as what it was, God's merciful grace to her to know what God thinks, to know what she should do. And she receives this law on Mount Sinai and it perpetuates circumcision as the sign of the covenant. There is a holiness code in this law, including separation from Gentiles on some level, to some degree. This was God's distinctive people. And Israel was always to be seen among the nations as distinctive and holy. We come then in God's redemptive plan to a a momentous moment, a momentous change in the salvation history with the coming of Jesus Christ and the inauguration of the new covenant. There is now a new way of relating to God. It's very connected to that old way. But the old way was an old way. It was an old covenant. There is now in Jesus Christ a unique turn in salvation history. Everything's been preparing for this. It didn't just land out of nowhere. But it is a unique moment as Jesus Christ fulfills the law and dies to pay the penalty of sin And those who come to trust in Him receive salvation. 
Jews and Gentiles now united in the body of Christ. And you can imagine with all of these hundreds of years, from somewhere in the range of 2200 B.C., all the way now here to into the 30 A.D. era, it's a long time for the Jews to see themselves as God's chosen distinctive people and for them to see circumcision and other works of the law as necessary to identify with God's law, with God's purposes for them. It was a momentous change. And Paul, evangelizing the Galatians on the other side of the cross, taking the message to Gentiles, those Galatian believers so soon after that are influenced by a false gospel that is looking at Jesus Christ crucified and risen and is pointing backwards and saying that people must continue to identify with God through the old covenant system in obedience to it, particularly, most significantly in circumcision, but in other ways as well. Through works of the law, we identify ourselves as God's people We continue to walk in fellowship with God's people. In fact, it's absolutely essential, they were saying to the Galatians. We know in the argument of the book, those that have followed through and tracked with it here for some time, these last few weeks, Paul has argued against the charge that he learned the gospel from the apostles and then confused it and missed some pieces that are really essential too. He went to the Galatians, led them to Christ, churches were established. Now these false teachers claiming to come from Jerusalem on the authority of the apostles there, they really were not, but they claimed that, and they said, you got to get this right. Paul did not get it right. And so we've got to straighten the gospel out here, and you must recognize that you must receive circumcision, You must continue in obedience to the law, identifying with God through this system. Now, all of that really doesn't trouble us a whole lot, we wouldn't say. There are applications to our day, but it is a different situation. We're not going to get anywhere by twisting the book of Galatians to fit our situation if we don't start with their situation. So that's it, and again, we've looked at this more than once Uh, already through this series, and perhaps we'll come back to it again. But just remembering these pieces and this context allows us to work out from there to our own. So what has Paul been doing? He's been explaining that, no, I didn't twist the gospel that I received from the apostles in Jerusalem. I received that message directly from Jesus Christ. And when I went back to Jerusalem and did eventually have contact with these grand apostles, as you are seeing them, as your false teachers are seeing them, they did nothing to change the message I was proclaiming. They didn't add anything to it. I took Titus along. Remember Titus, the Gentile that was brought to Jerusalem, and they didn't ask him to be circumcised? Okay, then there was this kerfuffle with Peter. Well, you know what? we did have a run-in. And that run-in had everything to do with how we understand the gospel, and in fact, it has something to do with you. So let me talk to you about that situation. Chapter 2, verse 11. We looked at this last week. We're tying it together to what follows today. 
But when Cephas, so I'm in 2.11 of Galatians, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was led astray by their hypocrisy and became a son of discouragement. Remember the situation. People from Jerusalem coming north to Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas are ministering. Peter is there as well, visiting, ministering the gospel. This whole unique Gentile thing, inclusion in the body, is a, is a challenge. But they're working through this, and Peter is joining in with Gentiles, realizing that the bond of Christ supersedes the old covenant distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. We're now one in Christ, Jew and Gentile. He's eating with them. He's rejoicing with them, fellowshipping with them. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. But then these visitors come from Jerusalem with this expectation, you must hold to the old covenant. You must do the works of the old covenant. And under that pressure, Peter will not eat with Gentiles. And so Paul confronts him Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Can I stop there just for a moment? Remember, Peter doesn't have a false gospel. He knows all of this, Acts 10 and Acts 11. He argued for this point. That Gentiles were fully included in among the people of God. He recognized along with Paul that salvation was not by works of the law, but he was not living in step with what he believed. So, verse 14, the second part. At that point I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, that's what was happening before these guys came, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews now that they've come? His separation from Gentiles clouded the message of reconciliation with God through faith in the gospel. Peter, listen. You recognize your freedom in Christ from the stipulations of the law. You get that. You demonstrate this knowledge all the time. Going back to Cornelius, Acts 10, and your defense, Acts 11. You get this. You understand this. But when these Jews visit and you won't eat with Gentiles, you are sending the message that one must identify with the Old Covenant to enjoy a full standing with God, and that compromises the Gospel. Because now that God has moved on, we need to move on. Now that God has moved on, if we go back... We're going to turn the Old Covenant into something it was not. And that is a means of works salvation. So he continues on, and we pick up here uniquely now today at verse 15. and makes this point. The central assertion we find here in verses 15 and 16. 
Justification is gained by faith in Christ alone, not by obedience to the law. There is some reason to believe, could be argued, that really what's happening at verse 15 through verse 21 is Paul still talking to Peter. So you see the quotation marks, at least in the ESV, that end at the end of verse 14. It's possible we could put them all the way down to verse 21. And that Paul is here kind of reporting what he had said to Peter and transitioning to the Galatians because it applies so directly to them. They were saying that Peter had a different gospel than Paul. He didn't, and Paul has made that clear, as well as history has made that clear. But, talking to Peter, perhaps, it's not all that essential, but talking to Peter... He is now talking as well to the Galatians. And here's the center of it. Um, Tom Schreiner has said that verses 15 through 16 form, I quote, the central thesis of the letter and is perhaps the most significant text in Galatians with the text functioning as a hermeneutical key for the remainder of the letter. So there's a student of the Greek text and of this book saying, wake up. Pay attention. These are really, really important verses. So let's take that to heart. Verses 15 and 16, in some sense, are the hinge of the whole book. The central assertion being this again, that justification is gained by faith in Christ alone, not by obedience to the law. Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Who's he talking to? Probably Peter. Is he talking to the Galatians? Galatians are Gentiles, largely, if not entirely. He's not talking to the Gentiles, so he's talking, it would seem, in context to Peter, perhaps to Barnabas, these other Jewish Christians. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Paul is not saying that he and Peter are not sinners. This is just cultural language. You spoke about Gentiles as sinners. Gentiles were sinners. They were distinct from the called people of God. He's saying something like, we're not sinners of Gentile origin. Now, that, it, it hits our ears as how does he think they're sinners and he's not. That's not how he's taking it. But they, we're not Gentile sinners. We're not Gentiles by birth. We're not outside of the people of God. We acknowledge that. And yet, verse 16, and yet, Though entrusted with God's written law and are members of His chosen people, and yet, verse 16, we know, we, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. There it is in a nutshell. And he'll spend the rest of the book unpacking a lot of what is there in verse 16. So we need to start here and ask the question, what is justification? When you think of justification, I think it is best to think of a courtroom and justice being 
administered there in that courtroom. Justification is standing before God and being deemed righteous, not being judged as a sinner. To be justified means to be declared righteous without guilt by the judge of the universe. Taking it contextually, that's the idea. So picture it. Because this isn't just an ancient book that was a squabble that was going on there and really doesn't have a lot to do with us. Picture it in your life. There's a day coming when you are going to stand before the throne of God. Who is, and I don't know exactly how this looks and I can't describe the scene to you. I've not been there. I don't have a movie deal or anything like that, right? But... You're gonna, we're going to stand before God, essentially, and He is going to declare a verdict. Guilty or not guilty? I declare this man is righteous. This woman is just, without charge. This child stands uncondemned, not guilty. As verse 16 says at the beginning, a person is not justified by works of the law. Let's bring that together. God standing as judge, I am not justified by works of the law. Now, virtually all human beings have some sense of justice. And it shows up on a lot of levels, even among people that aren't very just themselves, right? I'll reach back a long ways, but there was a day when I remember in a summer league basketball game, the game was getting close to the end. The verdict was still in question. And a loose ball went to the sideline, and I ran and got it and barely saved it and was dribbling along the sideline when the coach of the other team stole the ball from me. The coach of the other team stole the ball from me. The ref didn't see it and gave the ball to the other team and said that I had turned the ball over. What do you think happened on our bench? People went crazy in anger, yelling at the ref, how can you do this? How could you not see this? This is an injustice. There wasn't a whole lot of just people sitting on that bench, but they sure knew what justice was. That wasn't it. They appealed to the coach to admit what he had done, and he wouldn't. And there was just about a fist fight that summer night. But imagine if we found out that the ref saw it, knew it, and chose not to do anything about it. It's just a common daily life. We believe in justice. Fans get angry when refs make an unfair call. Citizens get upset when a politician bends the rules and gets by with it. We cry unjust when an official is bribed by a powerful corporation. God is a righteous judge. He never, ever plays favorites. 
He never looks the other way. He always judges justly. Is that good news? Well, maybe not. Maybe that's not very good news. It's, it's right news. It's the way it should be. God must be just, of course, but there's a problem. Because I don't always do the right thing. God is perfectly holy. He is a perfect judge, and I lie. I cheat. I really work at it, but I have to say, as I look at my life and as honest people look at it, I'm pretty selfish. I hate people sometimes. Don't always like to admit it, but I do. I commit adultery in my heart. I disobey my parents. I take things that are not mine. I'm envious of others. I don't rejoice in what God has given them. I I wish I had it, and I get upset about it. I have to say, as I go to stand before this perfect judge, I do not love God with all my heart. So is it good news? Well, it's right news. But what do we do about this? There's a small minority of people in this world who say, this is all just stupid. I don't believe any of this. I'm not worried about any of it. They dismiss it. They go barreling down the road of life, ignoring the reality that they are headed for judgment. They don't do anything about it. The vast majority of people in this world answer with some variation of this. Well, I better get busy. I need to do better. I need to get better. Start piling up good deeds so God will declare me righteous. Hopefully I'll be judged according to people I know that aren't as good as I am. But somehow I've got to do all that I can to impress God. And that's the major religions of this world. That's what they do. I'm going to do the best that I can to impress the Lord. What Paul is saying here in this phrase is this is ignorant and destructive thinking. Romans 3.10, Paul has written, it stands written, there is no one who is righteous, no, not one. No one does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, of the glory He is and of the glory that He requires. We fall short. I want you to put your eyes, if you will, on this text in verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Let that sink in. We are not justified by the works of the law. You will not be declared righteous before God's throne. You will not achieve a righteous standing before God by doing good deeds. The reasons are many. But for one, God's holy standard is too high. And two, you are too much in love with your sin and your own idolatries to actually fix it. But positively, verse 16 person is not justified by works of the law, but 
through faith in Jesus Christ. I trust Christ's death in my place to pay the full penalty of God's wrath against me. I trust in Jesus' resurrection for my eternal hope. I rest in what Christ has accomplished. Schreiner writes, human obedience to commandments cannot function as the basis of a right relationship with the Lord. Human obedience to commandments cannot function as the basis of a right relationship with the Lord. No one will be justified. Look carefully at those words and know that is talking about me. No one, no flesh will be justified. So there's a great irony already developing here. And that's that by nature, what we do is we pile up this big stockpile of good deeds in our mind and our thoughts. It's like they're in crates. We read our Bible and we go to church and we try to do good things to people. And when the call comes out, we try to be helpful, thoughtful. I, I don't... I, I work to clean up my language and I don't, I don't talk like uh, people at school or at work. And, and the crates begin to build up of all the good things that I've done. And when I compare with my neighbors, I think i got like 18 crates here and he's got two. And I really feel pretty much like I'm trying and I've got all these works that are building up. The irony is, of it is, is that that pile of works is destroying me. It's forming my destruction because I'm trusting in that instead of what Christ has done. I'm putting my confidence in what I've accomplished and thereby I'm trusting in an idol. I'm trusting in something that will not hold in the end. And so I would call you today on the authority of this verse to leave that pile behind. Don't rest in it. Don't trust in it. It's not to say that good works shouldn't be done. More on that later. But it is to say that that pile of good works will never get you to God. It cannot do so. As Paul continues his argument, he pens two of the most difficult verses in Galatians. 15 and 16 seem fairly straightforward. But we come now in verses 17 to 21, and we'll move through this fairly quickly. But a fundamental reorientation upon this central assertion that justification is gained by faith in Jesus alone, not by obedience to the law, there is then a fundamental reorientation that believers are now dead to the law and alive in union with the risen Christ. He works this out. It's a fairly confusing statement, but he says in verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. I've read my eyes dry trying to figure out what Paul's saying here, and I'm not going to give you a blow-by-blow on why I believe that he's saying here what he's, I think he's saying. I'm, I'm just going to give you my conclusion with a paraphrase. Here's what I think he's saying. If Peter and I are seeking to be justified by trusting in Christ as Savior alone, which we are, then yes, we indeed stand with the Gentiles. 
outside the Mosaic Covenant and as sinners. That does not mean, as my detractors say, that my faith in Jesus makes him responsible for my sinful status alongside Gentiles. Never. That is my evil, not Christ. But think in terms of Gentile sinners again in that category. Paul's saying, Peter, we've realized we are where the Gentiles are. The law is not going to make us just before God. We've figured this out, so we do stand with sinners. It's not that Christ is the source of our sin. Our own heart is the source of our sin. Verse 18, for if I build what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. I've read my eyes dry this week trying to figure out what Paul's saying here, and I'm not going to give you a blow-by-blow, but here's my paraphrase of what I think he's saying here. If I rebuild my former life of... What's he tearing down? It's the law and trust in it in some sense. If I rebuild my former, former life of obedience to the law, which is the life I tore down when I trusted Christ as my Savior, that would make me a terrible sinner. Restoring the law to function as the basis of my relationship to God, now that Jesus has fulfilled the law and paid sin's price completely, would be to revert to the old era of salvation. The new era in Christ has come. So think on the chart again. If I go back to what was, I sin against what is. I can't do that without becoming an egregious sinner against God. He's going to get to the heart of that sin further down in the passage. 19 is not a whole lot easier than verses 17 and 18, but as he continues to probably reason with Peter and thereby with the Galatians, the Gentiles in Galatia, verse 19, for through the law... I died to the law so that I might live to God. Through my incapacity to obey the law, I came under its condemnation and thus died to it. Law could not bring spiritual life and justification. Only Jesus could. Dead to the law, my old life is now buried. The way I once sought to relate to God is over. Now, 17, 18, and 19, you can have all kinds of really good people arguing that it should be taken a bit differently, but I think we get the general gist. In this conversation, in this orientation, there is a massive change. And verse 20 kind of opens up to us like the sun out of the clouds after these difficult statements. And this, though it is mysterious, we get. Here's the beauty, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. By trusting Jesus as Savior, Paul was united by faith to Jesus' death and resurrection. I don't know that anybody can really explain this ultimately, but there is a uniting in spirit with what Christ did such that my very identity is bound up with His and what He has done. Paul has been united to Jesus who now indwells him. There is more to come. Paul still lives in the flesh, that's in the body. The faith is not yet sight. 
but he has a whole new orientation, a new identity in Christ. And as we're being led in song and singing here today of this new life, we revel in it. We rejoice in it. It is our delight to speak of this new life in Christ, united to him and he indwelling me. Paul no longer seeks to walk in fellowship with God by keeping the law. He now lives by faith in the Son of God. This doesn't mean that he just does whatever he wants to do, that he breaks God's law with impunity. What it means is that now he's responding in the indwelling spirit as as he is united with Christ. He responds Every day, walking in faith in dependence upon his Savior, crucified and risen. It's a whole new world. That's very connected to the old world, very connected to the Mosaic law, very connected to Abraham's call. But there's this new life now in Christ. And you note the relational nature of this union. Who loved me and gave himself for me. I I think... The Israelites could say that, that God loved us and gave himself for us. But on some level, Israel would probably put it more in terms of God chose us and is a loving God. He elected us in Abraham. He formed us as a nation on Mount Sinai and gave us his law. He chose us as his own special, unique people. But here you see Paul going in a very relational and personal way. He loved me. He loved me. That's not the role of a judge. It's the role of a benefactor. That's the role of a Savior. And he gave himself for me. Again, we see how personal it is. Jesus died for individuals. Paul could say, he died for me. We can say that personally. This realization is how we stand before the throne of God. This is the spirit in which you want to stand before Him. Christ died for me. Does Jesus' sacrifice in my behalf matter? Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. I think he could say, we could say it, I refuse to nullify the grace of God in the provision of Christ. I do not nullify the grace of God. I won't nullify the grace of God. For, notice at verse, end of verse 21, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I refuse to nullify the grace of God in the provision of Christ, which is exactly what I would do if I argued that righteousness, a just standing, was achieved through keeping the law. If a righteous standing before God is achieved by keeping the law, Christ died for no reason. Let's not do anything in our life as believers to send that message. Peter. And Peter got it. And they agreed. So there's a danger here, it seems. A danger that you would look at Jesus Christ dying on the cross and see him bloodied and beaten and laboring in breath, every molecule of his body screaming for relief. 
And then as he yells to Telestai, it is finished and ends his life. You look at Christ hanging there on the cross and you say, waste of time, useless, no point of that, so sorry you had a bad day, nothing to do with me. You say, I'd never say that, that's horrifying, that's blasphemous to say something like that. But if right now you're in the mode of saying, I'm waiting to get my act together, I'm going to really start being a good person, I'm going to really start taking life seriously, and I'm, I'm going to really begin to push myself forward and become what God I know wants me to be, you may well be saying with your very life, it didn't matter. He died for no purpose. Because you're relying upon your own good religious deeds to make you acceptable before God. You're saying to Jesus as he breathes his last breath on the cross, well, that's too bad because I can save myself. And Paul is preaching to us uh, a little time ago, he used that illustration. Remember the illustration of the boy playing on the piano? And the master comes out and plays with him, around him, and it's this beautiful song as the kid's playing chopsticks or something. I think there's a place for that illustration, and I think in sanctification it's very useful. But I want to put a spin on that illustration in this context and turn it to a different angle. And let's just turn it this way and imagine that you have a dream. And in this dream, it's made clear that you're going to stand before God. You're going to have to be approved before Him. You don't know how this looks, but you're led into this great orchestra hall and it's absolutely empty. And you're nervous. You're saying, what do I got to do here? What's going to happen? And then you get really nervous when a voice comes out of nowhere and says, in one minute, you're going to receive in your hands and sit in this chair with a cello. And you're going to need to play a score of beautiful music perfectly to be accepted by God. Okay, I'm in big trouble. Everybody in this church is in big trouble. Because it's not going to be perfect. In fact, I don't even know the first time. I don't even know how to hold the bow. I'm not sure which directions. I, I can't. What? I, and while you are sweating and worrying, Yo-Yo Ma, this is a dream. Uh, if you don't know who that is, a great cellist. He comes out from behind the curtain and sits down and takes, or it doesn't take. He leaves your cello with you, but he brings his cello and he sits down and he begins to play the most beautiful piece of music that you've ever heard in your life, filling this great auditorium. And this is your test. This is your being proven before God to enter into his presence. I just ask you, while he's playing there, what are you doing? Are you going to get your cello and join him? Say, well, I gotta, I gotta try. I gotta do something here. I gotta help him out somewhere. At least I have to do something. I can't. No, you aren't gonna do anything. You're gonna sit there, 
And you're going to be as quiet and as silent as a rock. You're not even going to breathe while that music fills the air and is your qualification to enter into the presence of God. By way of simple illustration, when you say, I'm going to join what Jesus has done, it's like you're picking up your cello with no idea what you're doing and you're wrecking the song. You're depending on yourself and it's utterly foolish. You aren't going to add anything to the sound that's filling this room. You're only going to hurt it. But in humility and with great thanksgiving, you sit still and quiet and you let the master play. Jesus Christ is that master. He lived a life that was flawless before the law. As God, he fulfilled God's every righteous expectation and standard. And the thing that is so wonderful is God says, you must be just before me. He says that to us, you must be just before me. What he does not say is that the justice cannot be long to someone else. In fact, in this case, he says it can only belong to someone else, and that is my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why God gave his son to die so that Christ's righteous standing is given to us as we trust and put our faith and our confidence in his righteousness, in his sacrifice for sin, in his just standing being given to me by grace. So what does God think of you? This is why we call it good news. Hearing the music of his son's perfect life and death to pay our crimes, the father delights in you as he delights in the son. And so by His grace to all who trust in Christ crucified and risen, who are made alive in Him through faith, we're called to so live for Jesus every day that when we see Him, it will not be terror, it will be sheer and eternal delight. Not because of what we have done to earn His favor, but because we have been justified by faith in what He has done. And if in any way, shape, or form, any way at all, you are clinging in some sense to your own righteousness, your own actions, your own way forward, I call you today, let it go and leave it right here. And turn to embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior. And for those of us who have embraced that message, like Peter and like Paul, we're going to need to work out in our Christian lives how that looks. How I can send the message that I'm not saved by grace, but by works of my law, if not God's. We'll work that out. Paul will work it out through much of the rest of the book. But here we stop and say, we know we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. 
but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let's bow for prayer. Our Lord, our Savior, we give thanks to you for your work of righteousness, for the life that you lived, for the death that you died, and for the grace of righteousness that you give to us freely. I pray that you would bring us all to depend not in our own flesh and works, but in the work of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. And I pray as this assembly breaks up, that those who long to hear more about this will talk to someone before they leave. That as a body of believers, we will interact with one another and those who are among us who perhaps do not know Christ, and that we might have a fruitful conversations as we continue to edify one another and do this work to which you've called us. I pray that here in this place, Christ would be seen as the Savior, and anyone who is not so rightly related to him would come to faith in Jesus today. Again, for those of us who know you as Savior, teach us how to work this out in our daily lives, and not to send the message that we are depending on our works of righteousness for salvation, but on Christ alone. May we cling to faith alone, in Christ alone, for our salvation. This day, and may we rejoice in it. As we gather tonight around the Lord's table, I pray that we would gather as your people, rejoicing in these truths, celebrating the fact that our justification has been won by Christ and that we stand clothed in His righteousness. May this be a day in which your name is proclaimed and exalted and honored by unbelievers turning to Christ as Savior and by believers rejoicing with delight in your presence. Here around your word, later around the table, and as we think about this message going to the ends of the earth this evening. Through Christ we pray. Amen.